0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat, and today I'm thrilled and honored to be in dialogue with Rabbi Dr. Chaim Norman Strickman. He is a retired professor of Judaic Studies at Touro College. Today, we will be in dialogue regarding his newly translated and edited book. Abraham Ibn Ezra's The Secret of the Torah, A Translation of Ibn Ezra's Yesud Morah, published in New York by Kodesh Press 2021. Fahim, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. I'm sincerely thrilled.
0: And I'm very happy to be in dialogue with you.
1: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult?
0: Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood known as Brownsville, which was a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, when I was about 12, 12 years old, my family moved to Crown Heights, which also was uh, a Jewish neighborhood. In the fact that Robert a there, and mm. occasionally on uh, Shabbos Tendon, uh walking on the the parkway um i went to a yeshiva called Heim Berlin, where i got a good jewish education and from there i went to yeshiva university where i spent uh four years undergraduate two years postgraduate and i entered the Smicha program and in 1963 i got smiha and from there on, I went in, into uh, the rabbinate with an interview uh, teaching Savannah, Georgia, and that convinced me that teaching children is not my forte, and I decided to take a pulpit. Uh, While well, I had the pulpit, I also went to Dropsing University, Philadelphia, studied with Dr. Zeitler, was a major scholar of Judaism, the Second Temple Period, Second Commonwealth, and I got my PhD in 1970, and I was lucky, and I got a position, at tour of college in 73, and I've been, t- uh, and I don't know if I mentioned that I was a rabbi at the Green Park Jewish Center in Brooklyn, so I combined being a rabbi, teaching at college, and um, uh, a career with Spectrum which spe- was spread over close to the world by 40 years. And I moved to Israel seven years ago. Then here I'm sitting here being interviewed for a podcast.
1: What inspired you to write, prepare, edit, and translate this book? What message did you want your readers to receive from engagements with the thought and philosophy of Avraham Ibn Ezra?
0: Okay. Um, Ibn Ezra, I mean, all great scholars are unique. Ibn Ezra is a unique scholar that I've always thought could appeal to modern Orthodox Jews. That's how I discovered him. Um, he dealt with some of the issues that I was concerned about. I can't say all of it. he had answers to all of my problems, but at least these were issues that that he openly spoke about. which some of the other commentaries weren't bothered by the same problems that Ibn Ezra was bothered by. Didn't deal with. Um, when it came to interpreting scripture, some of the non-literal interpretations of scripture caused me to, gave me problems. And when I came across to and I saw what he says, I said, my God, there's a great rabbi, I can't say he thinks along my lines, it's a great rabbi, but these are issues that are bothering me and they were bothering and great the cause that made the impression on me with Ibn Ezra. And I really think that a lot of people are still being drawn to him by that aspect of his work.
1: What are the primary themes in yesod Morah?
0: Okay. Um, yesod Morah means the foundation of fear. Okay? Meaning foundation of the fear of God. Or the word Morah, as it's used in Ibn Ezra, also stands for the commandments of the Torah. The, the Yesud Morah tries to explain the reason for judaism and the reason for the commandments and even Ezra. one of the points that he makes it in, in the book is that the torah was not given to fools the torah was given to intelligent people therefore the torah should be understood in an intelligent manner of course different people have different opinions of what's intelligent or what's not and nice makes life interesting. And that is why, by the way, there were people who were opposed to Benazar's thoughts are, uh, but uh he held on to his and he openly discussed that. And I might say that it's speaking highly of the Jews of Ashkenaz, this is where he spent uh, his uh, very active career from eleven forty to the time that he probably that he passed away, that uh in that climate of that period, he by and large was greatly respected and his writings were studied eventually, and he had a great influence on uh, on Jewish thought. What we have to be aware of is most of the Jewish intellectual work and philosophical work was done in Arab-speaking countries, and the Jews living in Europe, or not necessarily the Jews living in Ashkenazic Europe, say France and Germany, They didn't speak Arabic. They could not handle Sadiqan in the original. Later on, they couldn't handle Moses Maimonides the Rambam in the original. Or Yehuda Alevi. Those books had to be translated. Ibn Ezra was one of the first to write a book on Jewish thought in Hebrew. And this was uh, accepted very happily by a good segment of Jewry. And he's known as Hechacham Ibn Ezra, the wise Ibn Ezra. Now, not everyone liked what he said, but um, uh, he opened their eyes. Let me see. Do I have a great quote here? If I can find it in my book, there I will uh, quote from Ibn Ezra where he says why he wrote this book. uh Morat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he writes, uh, "The law sport insp- inspiring God knows my heart's sincerity, for I did not compose this book." to show that I mastered the sciences, or to glorify myself, by showing that secrets have been revealed to me. Neither did I write it in order to argue with our ancient sages. For I surely know that they were wiser and more god and more God fearing than I. I composed this book for a revered and noble individual, whom I taught the books that I wrote for him. I Troubled myself to compose a book for him, dealing with the commandments, only the cause of my great love for him, for I found them to be a person of integrity, whose fear of the Lord exceeded that of most men. So he wrote this book to inspire people, like the one that he wrote this book for. for. The, 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 his student that he wrote this book for was probably Joseph Benyakov was one of Ibn Ezra's patrons, and uh, he dedicated this book to him because economically the man also uh, helped him out. Now, Ibn Ezra, I might as well go into this, uh, Mm -hmm. his introduction to this book goes on to say that the book was written so that a person can perfect his soul. Ibn Ezra says, man's soul is unique. When it is first placed in the body, it is like a tablet set before a scribe. When God's writing is inscribed upon this tablet, then the soul clings to God, both while it is yet in man and later after it leaves the human body. Okay, so uh, the purpose of uh, the Torah, the purpose of Judaism is to help man develop his soul, so that after he passes on, the soul will rejoin other souls in heaven. Whereas the person who doesn't develop his soul, even Ezra appears to believe, loses it.
1: Can you describe the times in which Abraham ibn Ezra lived? Can you describe the historical circumstances of his biography? Can you place his life in writing in historical context?
0: Yes, he was he was born, off the top of my head, let me see, in 92. And he lived in Spain till 1140. Now, what did he do? He was a poet. And uh, What does it mean he was a poet? That's how he made his living, probably. Which means uh, if someone had a wedding and they wanted to uh, have a poem read about the bridegroom or the bride, Ibn Ezra was the man to see. And he, there are a lot of poems that we have of his that he wrote on, on these occasions. He, by the way, he even has a poem, How Hard It Is to Sell a Poem. Because when he went to the man's house that he was going to try to sell a poem to, he was told he's not here. So he was a poet. In addition to being a poet, Ibn Ezra was also a, a, a thinker. He came into contact with the up echelons of Jewish society. And was well acquainted with Rabbi Alevi. Some want to say he was related to him, but Ibn Ezra never says that. Though uh, Ibn Ezra's son accompanied Rabbi Alevi on his trip to Israel. He didn't go with him all the way to Israel. I think they split up in Egypt. So uh Rabbi Alevi was a poet and uh he had a difficult life. He may have had as many as five children. But four of them died in childbirth, and he had a son. He had problems with his son. Um, He lost his wife and never remarried again. Finally, in the year 1140, he left Spain. And there are questions, you know, historians like to ask, why did he leave Spain in 1140? People come up with various different ideas. But if we want to be, you know, super realistic, it's quite possible that he left Spain Because he had something which the people in Italy, Germany, and France did not have. Namely, philosophical and secular knowledge. In Spain, maybe he wasn't considered the greatest philosopher. There were others going to France, going to uh, other places in Europe, having the knowledge that he had, which they didn't have was a way in which he could make a good living maybe I shouldn't use the word good but the way where they could make a living the Jewish people of France is, of France and Italy they were not able to read the great Hebrew grammarians that were be and grammar books that were being produced now in uh, by the Jews of, uh, of of Spain or in Egypt they couldn't read Raphs gone say Agro which was the first dictionary in Hebrew. They couldn't read the other great works by grammarians. Along came Ibn Ezra and he wrote for them books in Hebrew on Hebrew grammar. Now a whole world was open to them. And he also introduced them, though he probably wasn't the only one. Certainly he wasn't the only one to have to read Tanakh in a literal fashion and not read it uh, in a homiletic fashion. Now, not that homilies are important, but it's also good to know what the text is saying or what you think the text is saying. And this is what he uh, introduced it to. Had he remained in in Spain, I don't know who would be talking about him, but going to Italy, going to uh, Provence, going to northern France, and later on where he probably passed away in Italy. By the way, he wrote, uh, not Italy, England, he wrote the Submarine in England. Um, so um, he made a great impression. And it was not only on Jews that he made an impression. Even Ezra was an astrologer, which in those days was very, I guess was, you could say an astronomer. But um, he, he cast charts. Some governors asked him he he cast charts for them. But he taught classes in astrology to non-Jewish Europeans. We have some books that he wrote in Latin. The question is whether he wrote them in Latin or his students, you know, transcribed what he lectured to them in Latin. And it's a very interesting uh, sometimes to come across a medieval document uh, which says, which refers to Dr. Ibn Ezra. That's not how the Jews refer to that. Uh the Jews referred to him as Rabbi Ibn Ezra, Hechacham, Rabbi Ibn Ezra. But he had students uh, who were not Jewish that he taught the uh, uh, astrology to. There is even an opinion that he introduced the zero into Europe. He definitely introduced it to the Jewish community. After his period, there was no zero, so it's hard to do math without a zero. Uh, he definitely... Um, exposes unsure students to, to this. Um, however, it's very quite possible, and mathematicians uh, say that uh, it was somebody else who introduced the zero to Europe. But uh, he definitely taught mathematics to finance. Okay? So that, that that's the background. Thank you. Okay. Unfortunately, in 1138, around then, um, Spain was invaded by... Uh, a fanatical sect of Muslims from North Africa and tragedy befell the Jewish community of Spain. And there's a poem from Ibn Ezra lamenting the great tragedy that befell Spanish Jewry. There are those who want to say that Ibn Ezra left Spain because of these pogroms, but it isn't so because he left Spain in 1140, and I think these pogroms occurred in 1138. No, no, 1038. I don't have my. uh, I I know he left Spain before the the, the, uh, before the pogroms broke out. If not, we'll have to check history book. How
1: does your research improve our understanding of the relationship between Avraham Ibn Ezra and the philosophy of Spinoza? Of of Spinoza. Uh,
0: Spinoza studied in a Jewish school in Amsterdam, and it's pretty. pretty certain that he studied Ibn Ezra. Aside from that, he quotes him in his books. Why nay? So we know he studied from him. And uh, in in fact, he uh, made Ibn Ezra known because he quoted from him uh, in the the non-Jewish world. Now, one of the things that Spinoza claimed that Ibn Ezra taught was... Idea of pantheism. And actually, Ebenezer didn't teach that, but he has statements which come close to saying that. However, in, you have to take the totality of his works and every time he speaks about God to see if that fits in. Now, I'm going to take one from the book of Genesis, Book oh, of uh which is, uh, let me see, which is chapter one. Uh-huh. Uh, in the exact verse in the second. Whoops! It's at the end of uh, verse twenty-six. Let us make man in God's image. Now, Ibn Ezra says in that at the end of that uh, of a paragraph uh, dealing with the issue of man created in God's image. Ibn Ezra says God is one. He's the creator of all. He is all. I cannot explain further. Mm-hmm. I had, if even Ezra spoke no in no other place about God, it seems he's identifying the word with God. And indeed, even Ezra says himself, after uh, saying what I just quoted him as saying, "God is one. He's the creator of all. He is all." He says, "I cannot explain further." Mm-hmm. Now, so question: What it means? I can't explain further. I, I, at first glance, it looks like this is a very hard thing. It's very difficult, esoteric. I can't explain it. Some want to read it as being, I am not permitted to explain it. But this is what Ibn Ezra says. However, if we only had this line of Ibn Ezra, then we could, you know, you could speculate that maybe he was a pantheist. This is, all, by the way, this is all what Spinoza focused on. But the fact of the matter is, Ibn Ezra speaks about God throughout his commentary, and then he also wrote poems, uh, hymns to God. And, uh, it's, it's quite clear from that, that he did not believe in pantheism. So what do you do with a line like we just read? So Ibn Ezra says the following about God created man in God's image, in what way is man created in God's image? So Ibn Ezra says as follows man's upper soul is eternal and is compared in its existence to God and because man's soul is incorporeal and fills the body which is a microcosm in the same way that God fills the universe he fills the universe scripture states in our image and our likeness he created us so therefore man is created in the image of God and man has a soul, which is godlike, and the soul is all over the body, but it can't be seen. And no part of the body can be said to, can one say, this is, this is the part that's, God is in it. What in the Nesra means is God's spirit is all over the world and is in all things. And other Jewish thinkers say something very similar. But it's it's a far jump from this line uh, just to focus on it and come up with what uh, Spinoza came up with. Uh, and he was a total pantheist.
1: Is there anything else you wanted to address from the interview, or was this all?
0: Oh, well, we were speaking about uh, the reasons why Ibn Ezra left Spain.
1: Yes, I can a- Shall I ask that in the form of a question?
0: Yes, uh, let me see. I, I know all the reasons that I gave. Uh, Okay, you can ask in the form sure. of reason.
1: How does your research shed new light on the reasons why Avraham ibn Ezra left Spain?
0: Okay um, I can't say that I came up with the reasons for it, but um, it would appear to me that he had an uh, uh, there was an economic reason for him leaving Spain. In Spain, he was a poet. He was also a thinker, but you have to put the foot on the table. What he perf- what he had was knowledge. He had philosophical knowledge, but he had knowledge of the Spanish Jewish, idol commentators, like Yehuda Ibn Chayyuj, and-, and the various other uh, idol commentaries who wrote in Arabic. The Jews living in the, in parts of Europe, um. That were not uh, uh, Arabic speaking, such as France and Germany and Italy, they couldn't use those books. In fact, Jewish philosophy uh, books had to be translated from Arabic into uh, Hebrew, like Yehuda Levis Kuzari, translated from Arabic to Hebrew, Rabbi Satya Gorn's Book of Belief and Opinions. Uh, the Rambam's Moranavuche, and of course, Ibn Ezra's Yesod Moran, which was one of the first philosophical books, philosophy books to be translated from Arabic into. No, I'm sorry, which was one of the first philosophical books to be written in Hebrew. If you were of a bent and wanted to know Jewish philosophy, and you didn't know Arabic, you were at a disadvantage. And in fact, is the translations were very popular in Europe. But in the case of Ibn Ezra, you had a lithe person who knew the material and could teach the material. So it's quite possible that Ibn Ezra left Spain uh, for Italy and later northern France, and southern France, because he had something to teach. And indeed, that's how he made his living, teaching material which others did not have. And he even taught non-Jews. He taught them astrology. So it's quite possible that Ibn Ezra made this trip from uh, Spain to uh, non-Arabic speaking parts of Europe to be able to make a living. And we know that he had patrons who gave him money to produce books, which he occasionally dedicated to them. So that's one reason why he may have left. And, and we have documents stating how happy people were to see him and, and greet him when he came to, um, uh, to to Europe, uh, to, um, to uh, um, non-Arabic-speaking Europe, because now they had somebody who could teach them material that he, he just did not have at hand, which they did not have at hand before. Well, um... So that's one of the reasons he may have left. Another reason that he may have left uh, uh, Spain was the, the, the other reason, some say, is because of the Almohada invasion. The Almohadim were an Arab group conquered a good part of Europe. Ultimately, they conquered Spain and they did not allow freedom of religion. And to the Jews, they gave a choice, convert to Islam or be killed. So there were Jews who converted to Islam and secretly kept Judaism, like the Morales later on did in Christian Spain. There were others who left Muslim Spain and moved to Northern Spain uh, where they could practice their religion, namely Christian Spain. And a lot of... uh, rabbis and people moved from uh, Spain, one part of Spain, to the other part. Some want to say that Ezra's leaving of Spain was somehow somehow tied to this invasion. But the truth of the matter is it can't be because even Ezra left Spain in 1140 and the Al-Mahadis came about 11, uh, 1145 or maybe 1148 in some places. Well, so he left before they came. So their coming to Spain was not the reason why he left uh, uh, Spain, uh, uh, that he left uh, uh, Arabic-speaking Spain. So we have to look for a different reason. And that other reason seems to me to make the most sense is uh, that it was a chance to better his economics. Finally, some say that he was an individual who had in him a wanderlust. he wanted to see different vistas and he isn't the only one there were other jewish uh there were other rabbis or, or uh, other jewish personalities who traveled around benjamin if traveled 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 over uh, the jewish world and he wrote a book and each place where he came he wrote down how many jews are living in this town and what they're doing uh the, and they want to say that Ibn Ezra similarly had this need to move around in him. And he mentions things that that he saw, and you can only do that by traveling from place to place. There's one place where he says, now it's a question whether uh, this occurred or whatever the case be, that he was on the Indian Ocean and there was a thick fog. And he uses it to explain the three days of darkness that swept over Egypt. So there was in him a a feeling and a need to travel and see different uh, things. So he traveled to Italy. He was a Rome. He was a Lucca. Then he traveled to uh, Provence. Then he traveled to northern France. Then he traveled to England. He may have traveled to Morocco. Uh... And he may have traveled to the land of Israel. In in the last few years, they found a, actually they found a, uh, a matseva, they found a monument, a tombstone, with the name on it, Abraham Ibn Ezra. And there's a question, is this Ibn Ezra's tombstone or not? If it is, then he did go to uh, uh, the land of Israel. It's interesting that uh, Benjamin of Tujila that person I just mentioned who traveled all over—I uh, believe he says that in the Galilee he saw the grave of Abihu Levi and uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra. People did not take this very seriously because they didn't take it seriously. But now with finding that tombstone, it could very well be that uh, what he saw was an accurate. Uh, what he saw was an accurate. It's an accurate uh, signing.
1: Can you comment on the interconnections be- between Yesud Mora and Abraham Ibn Ezra's Torah commentaries? In what ways do the themes presented complement or contradict one another?
0: Actually, they do not. And some of the uh, comments that Ibn Ezra makes in his commentary on the Torah are repeated again in uh, his Yesod Morah on I wouldn't say, basically, I think they both say the same thing. It might be a bit more concentrated in Ebenezer as Yusot Morah because it's a small book, and the Homish takes up much more space. But uh, basically, I off the top of my head, I can't think of any contradictions.
1: How has and, and I'm trying to. I don't see any contradictions that I can think of. How has Yusot Morah? Being read and received by interpreters in the centuries following its publication? How was it read by fellow Spanish Jews? How was it received by conversos and anusim during the Inquisition? How was it appreciated during the Haskalah? How has it been read by Orthodox and non-Orthodox Jewish readers in contemporary times? Okay.
0: The maskilim or some of that Liked Ibn Ezra very much, and they liked him because he had an independence there, which is nothing wrong with. But if you're only taught to study the Chumash with Rashi and nobody else, or maybe you can if you want to, and if you're of a certain bent, you may see that there some of the commentaries that Rashi says are not necessarily the literal meaning of the text. Well, people who are came across, Ibn Ezra said, hey, I'm not the only one to say this. <laughs> Ibn Ezra says this. So he became a, a, a favorite. And, and also because he made some statements that uh, a would really like. He said, Im akabel. if this interpretation is a tradition that's been handed down from generation to generation, akabel, I accept the tradition. If it's based on an individual opinion, I have my own opinions. I have uh, my own independent opinions. So if this is, you know, a, a tradition based on the, on the Torah, I will accept it. If it's a tradition based because someone, whatever it is, no matter how great, Gave his opinion, then I can give my own opinion. Now you know the masculine to is such words you know, but it, things shouldn't be taken out of place, which they are very. By the way, Spinoza, in my opinion, and opinion of others, also misinterpreted Ibn Ezra, and uh, he quoted a number of things that Ibn Ezra never said. He quoted in Ibn Ezra's name, and. um or at least he interpreted what Ibn Ezra said the way he wanted him to say it, and uh, that caused, you know... But for some people, this uh, made them fall in love with Ibn Ezra. They said basically he and Spinoza are on the same... Uh, on the same... of uh, a... Uh, windlet, which they weren't on.
1: When you comment on the interconnections between Yesud Morah and Avraham Ibn Ezra's poetry, what are the similarities and differences? He...
0: The Yusuf, the Barah starts with a beautiful poem. Otherwise, I don't see any connection really. Well, the connections are, as, you know, that God has no body or form. This is what Ibn Ezra taught. Um, it's, it's things of that nature. But by and large, it, you, can, you can write a book of poetry from Ibn Ezra uh, without uh, having to write the Yusuf Barah. They're, they're independent works. But you're raising a good point into it.
1: How would Avram Ibn Ezra define the ideal person? How would he characterize a good person?
0: Okay. That he deals with. Ibn Ezra says that the goal of the Torah is to perfect the heart. Heart meaning the person's psyche. And he says a, the commandment of the Torah is not properly observed unless it's also observed with the heart. Doing things by rote, Ibn Ezra is one of those, he says, is meaningless. The rituals of the Torah are all aimed at perfecting a person. That's why there are laws in the Torah for charity. There are laws that prohibit Uh, a person from striking another individual. Uh, There are laws that if you see a a, a poor person, you have to help them. The Torah tries to make a person into a perfect individual. It doesn't always work with everybody, but that's the aim, and that's what everyone should aim at. Perfection of the heart, according to Benezra, is the basis of the Torah. So um, he would disagree, say, with uh, someone in in the modern periods, we believe that Judaism, like Moshe Mendelssohn, who believe that Judaism is only a religion of practice. It is not a religion of belief. Ibn Ezra is, it's mainly a religion of belief, and the rituals just help us perfect this feeling of, of the spiritual part of our lives.
1: How does Abraham Ibn Ezra in Yesud Mora understand evil? What does Yesod Murat teach us about evil?
0: Okay, the big issue in, in Middle Jew, Jewish, medieval Jewish thinking is the existence of evil. Maimonides did his best to try to explain it by saying that people have to realize they're not the center of the world. And some of the things that are necessary, necessary for the world to function may harm the individual. And we have to be mature enough to know this but that god doesn't want to do anything that's bad and he doesn't do anything that's bad and we have to realize that what we think is bad is something that that is necessary that's what he says in the uh guide for the perplexed Ibn Ezra's idea was that there is a certain amount of evil in the world but the good is much more than the and the intelligent person according to Ibn Ezra, will realize that there's more good in the world than evil in the world. And that most of the things that are wrong with the world is because people just don't want to follow the ethical principles of Tawh. If they would, it would be a different world. Ibn Ezra says on in the Bible and the book of Duration, where it says, God saw everything that he made and it was very good. So Ibn Ezra says. The majority of things are good. There is a little ego pushed in with it, but by and large, it's, it's mostly for
1: the good. Can you comment on the similarities and differences between Abram ibn Ezra's message and messages in Yesud Morah and Moses Maimonides' says, message and messages in The God of the Perplexed. What are the interconnections between the two works? In what ways do they contradict or complement one another?
0: You hit the nail on the head. I've written a little about this, but uh, it's my opinion that Ibn Ezra had an influence on Ram. If he didn't, then there are certain things that are in the Rambam similar to what Ibn Ezra says. The differences—I mean, a very a lot of differences—but the basic differences. The Guide for the Perplexed is a big book, and Ibn Ezra's Sukhara is not that big. But um, there are certain similarities between Ibn Ezra and the Rambam. We'll take some, which today isn't earth shaking, but then was. Ibn Ezra says that God is not to be conceived as having a body. He's incorporeal. What do you do with those parts of the Bible that speak of God having a body, which there are a lot of, anthropomorphisms? Ibn Ezra says, um, which is based on the Talmudic passage. The Torah speaks in human language. And people can only speak in terms of images. Without images, we can't think about anything. So if we want to describe God, we have to use human images. God's mighty hand. or God is angry, but don't take these things literally. This, the Rambam agrees with Ibn Ezra. Incidentally, the Rambam passed away in 1104, something like that, and Ibn Ezra passed away in 1167. So, Ibn Ezra is a generation before. I might know that the Rambam's son Ram quotes Ibn Ezra in his commentary on the French. Okay, so both of them agree that uh, God is incorporeal. However, the Ramam goes further. Ibn Ezra, it would appear to me, believes that someone who believes that God has a body is being foolish. Ramba believes he's worshiping idols. Rambam believes if you conceive of God physically, you, you are an an idol. Okay, that's a basic difference between the Ramam and a lot of other Jewish thinkers. The major Jewish thinkers all tell you that God has no body. Eloh, the Gustav that's comes from Ramam, or it comes from a poem based on Ramam. But um, I, Ibn Ezra she believes, and the others, I mean, the guide, uh, Chobitz of others, the Duties of the Heart says explicitly, all their four believes that God has a body. Even Ezra goes further, not even Ezra, Maimonides goes further. And Maimonides uh, considers uh, uh, anyone who believes that God has a body as a pagan. This is a very difficult uh, issue and it was discussed by Jewish thinkers. By the way, Raab Vant was Ramam's opponent who wrote a book criticizing the Mishnah Torah. He says, why does Ramam call her a heretic? Maybe he's just because he takes the wine literally. He is not sophisticated. Maybe he's foolish, but he's not a heretic. That's one of the big differences between uh, the Rambam and 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 the Rive. Uh, the Rabbi Abraham uh, Rab, Okay, now what other uh, parallels do we have between uh, the Rambam and Ibn Ezra? Um, yes, um, Ibn Ezra had an ascetic streak. That doesn't mean he was an ascetic. He wrote poems on the wine. Now wine songs for people that people had a party. Today they have musicians in those days they used to drink wine. So he uh he wrote wine songs. I don't think it was the Rambam ever wrote a wine song. I might be wrong, but you certainly I haven't seen any. Now, Ibn Ezra believed that a a truly pious person Who lean towards asceticism. For example, there's a difference of opinion regarding a Nazarite. Is the Nazarite a sinner or is the Nazirite a super pious person? To obey a Zeratama. Maimonides says that the Nazarite is a sinner. It's enough what God prohibited. He didn't have to go and define himself additional prohibitions. You know, the Nazarite can't come his hair. her. Uh, and he can't drink wine. Ramam believes that's going to an extreme. How, how then why does the Torah say, the Ramam considers a Nazarite, uh, he considers the prohibitions that the Nazarite has to go through as a uh, way of controlling his lusts. A lustful person has to control himself. And the way to control yourself is, According to the Rambam, you have to go to the opposite extreme and then you will end up with a well-balanced life. So according to the Rambam, the reason why the Torah lays down asceticism is if you are of a certain type of personality and you want to change yourself, this is what you should do. Ibn Ezra says, no, the Nazarite is a holy person. And the reason the Nazarite is called a sinner is because he's not a Nazarite forever. The only practice is being a another for a certain period of time. 30 days, a year, whatever it happens to be. But then he goes back to the mundane world. Well, that's a very big difference between Ibn Ezra, theoretically anyway, and the Rambam.
1: How does Yesud Morah understand the philosophical value of the Hebrew alphabet?
0: Okay, you got me there. Uh, Ibn Ezra has a mystical side. He explains the alphabet mystically. Uh, that's the, that's part of the artist parts of the Sudmara, Unless you you know he, you are part of that tradition uh, that understands uh, the Hebrew alphabet and the, that the letters have meanings and uh, the Aleph is made a certain way, in reaching towards the heaven, and the Lamet stands for studying. No, he, he believes the uh, the, uh, the Hebrew alphabet has meanings. There, he got part of it, I think, from the Safi Yitzira. believes that God created the world using the alphabet and uh, the, the and the first 10, uh, nine letters of the uh, of the numbers and integers, the first nine numbers, and it was a combination of letters and mathematics that gave birth to the If I read it correctly, let's try it again. Al-Hans ibn Ezra.
1: How might al ibn Ezra respond to questions posed about commandments or mitzvot, whose underlying ethical principles, which he tries to explain, are difficult to comprehend or understand in light of new understandings of ethics in light of progress in ethics or in light of changes in ethics
0: i don't think even as your idea of development of ethics he believed that what the torah says is ethical and you can't go beyond it now you'll tell me i'm gonna argue with him well he's not here so we can't argue with him but he will tell you right now the kids the torah is ethical and you, you can't go beyond
1: it mm-hmm. how can yesod mora speak to perspectives in contemporary jewish philosophy
0: okay all right that this is not simple and there's no easy answer but i'll try within orthodox Judaism today as it was before there is a difference of opinion regarding secular studies the issue is raised in america I don't know if you're following the newspapers, that certain uh, ultra-orthodox, I'll use that term, schools don't teach children uh, enough secular material, say mathematics or even English. And it's certainly the case in Israel, where uh, ultra-orthodox Jews don't get a secular education at all. Uh-huh. Even Ezra had the idea that you can't... Now, I'm not saying studying... Uh, Medieval history is about to solve the problem of intellectualism. But Ibn Ezra had the belief that there's certain things that every intellectual person must study and know. And you can't be a truly developed human being until you know these things. For example, he believed that you must know mathematics. He believed you have to know astronomy. I mean, you can't do anything with the Torah if you don't know astronomy. You can't make a count on Jewish calendar unless you to sit down and and do the calculations. There are other calculations that you can you can't do if you're not uh if you don't know mathematics. Okay? In addition, uh Hebrew grammar you must know. There was a movement on a certain segment Judaism to do away with Hebrew grammar because the secularized Jews put, put emphasis on it. But if you don't know the Hebrew grammar, you can't study the Torah. So, even Ezra believed you have to know the sciences, where we may ask questions upon him, and I certainly agree, it's not everything that the medieval scientists believe is necessarily true. In fact, we know a lot of it isn't true. There uh, There are no spheres in the sky which they believed. You know, there are a lot of things that medieval people believe that we know are and so, and Ibn Ezra believed you have to know that. Okay, so those things change. You can't argue. However, the idea that being a religious Torah Jew means you also have to be ignorant of the scientific world, that even Ezra would disagree. In fact, it is said that he was a physician, but I don't know. The proof that I saw the 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 commencement, he he knew about medicine, but that's because he was an intelligent person for that period. But uh, he wasn't like the Ramban, as far as medical knowledge goes. Yeah, we have a difference. that you asked me between Maimonides and Ibn Ezra, Ramban's knowledge of medicine was much greater. How do we know? We have some of the medical books of the Ramban.
1: Okay? Thank you. How does Ibn Ezra understand suffering?
0: How does even Ezra understand?
1: Suffering. What does Yesud Murat say about trauma and human suffering?
0: You're asking a very good question. Then uh, it takes time to focus on it. He went through a lot of suffering. I mean, if they report that he had five children and two of them passed away when they were very young and in the trouble that it was with his son. Okay. um, By the way, in his poetry, he, he speaks of his anguish, how he, he he was attacked. We don't know exactly when did it, if the attack took place. Uh, his way of dealing with it is to pray to God. In fact, I want you to know something, and this is another thing between Ibn Ezra and my mind. It's, it's popping up. Ibn Ezra believed that a truly believing Jew will not rely on medicine, and will pray to God. And if God wants to, God will heal him. And if you won't, yes, you accept God's ruling. Rambam Maimonides, on the other hand, said, No, you must go to a physician. And Maimonides interpreted the biblical verse, erappe, He shall heal him, meaning that there's a mitzvah for a physician to heal a sick person. So the Rambam said, If you're sick, you go to a physician. Even Ezra said, If you're sick, you pray to God, and hopefully he will listen to you and he will save you. That's one of the big differences between the Rambam and i meant, uh, repeating myself, and Ibn Ezra. Rambam said, when you're hungry, you eat, all right? When you're sick, you take medicine. And of course, when you eat, you make a for and if But you don't stop eating because you feel God is going to send down well, food to you, which will somehow penetrate into your body. But this is, by the way, one of the major differences between the Rambam and, uh, and Ibn Ezra. But uh, Ibn Ezra lived the whole life, so he, he got along without physicians. I believe.
1: What does Yesudmura say about divine punishment? How what does this he... un- how does what this unfold he... un- and what are the nuances of divine punishment according to Ibn Ezra?
0: About divine punishment? Yes. He believes that when people sin, God's... Protective shield over them is Rebelhood. And he also believes when well, the person is really bad, God will look a boomerang strike him. Mm-hmm. Unlike Rafsad gone I don't think he deals with the question the righteous person who appears to be suffering and the wicked one who seems to be in good shape. Rafsad Yagan dealt with this. Uh, I'm not aware of him as it as you're
1: dealing with this. How would you identify the genre? of writing that Yesod mora is is it an ethical treatise is it a polemic is it a work in moral philosophy is it a study in jurisprudence is it something else is it all of the above
0: it's a series of essays some of which is easy to understand but then a good part of the book is very hard to understand, and that is the problem for the answer is one of the hardest in the bible also biblical commentaries, and com- commentaries are being written on him till today. Obviously, there's something in what he says, but to show basically recently, recently, there weren't that many very readable commentaries. Today, there are. So, um, his son, Laura, without a commentary, is very difficult to address. I would like to think that I made him understandable uh, in, in my translation. Uh, I hope I did, but there are, the chapter on the alphabet, I, I I translated it and I explained it explained in it quotes, you know, following uh, what commentaries say, but uh, he does not have an easy style. There are those, though, I don't believe it, it who said he wrote this way, because he didn't want everyone to understand what he said. Medieval writing in general is hard to understand because... Um, they left out sometimes verbs and they left out nouns, assuming that the reader will understand what's left out. Or well, you reach a point where so much is left out, you does not know what you're talking
1: about. What does Avraham Ibn Ezra mean by obligatory and non obligatory commandments? What are some examples of each? Can you specifically elaborate on what is meant by non obligatory? Obligatory commandments. How is a, his presentation of non obligatory commandments relevant to how we think about Judaism in contemporary times? Okay, yeah. So, yes, I mean, there are
0: Non obligatory commandments is, yeah, if you have non kosher meat, the Torah says give it to your door. Is there an obligation to give it to your door? You don't make a bracha when you give it to the door. I, I think that's what he means. What Nezra said. There are those who include, he's taking issue with some of the people who count 613 commandments and non-obligatory commandments. Among the composers of the azarat, there are those who include optional acts of the commandments. They thus list, you may give it, anything that dies of itself, that's what the Torah says, to the stranger that is within your gates, or you may sell it unto a foreigner. They count this as a precept, even though a person is permitted to dispose of the carcass in any manner he desires. You shall cast the flesh torn by beasts to the dogs is similarly optional, for its meaning is tied and you shall be holy men unto me. The meaning of the verse is, it is unfit for you to eat meat that has been torn. Give it rather to the dog, that guards your sheep, but there's not a specific list for you to give it to the dog. I mean, Here, here's my footnote. Yes. So, Ibn Ezra, footnote 55. You do not have to necessarily cast the meat to a dog. Right? That's what I just said. Some opinions, however, held that you shall cast it to the dog is a commandment. See the commandments of Ibn Gabiro, who lists the Ed that you shall give the dead animal that dies of itself to the strangers among the six hundred and thirteen commandments. Also see Tosafot thirty one B, where he discusses the prohibition of the Well, Wow, uh, the, uh, the commandment. Uh, I will go double check that. This Sabbath, we have a chance that the, the commandment. Uh, you know, to to give the torn meat to the dog.
1: Yes, I was going to just signed, sign off by perhaps asking you, what have you been working on since completing this book? Um, what have you devoted your time to? Would you like to share with us any subsequent projects that you have engaged in or subsequent commitments that you devoted your time to since completing this book?
0: What I'm working on now is there is a website called Allah Torah that is trying to put out the traditional Jewish documents in English on the uh, web. And the website is Alla Torah. I have some work that I've done um, on that website. I put out a translation of uh, Ezra's commentary on the book of Esther. He wrote two commentaries. I translated both of them. I wrote notes. The book of Gehelet I did. The book of Psalms I did. Translated even Ezra on the Torah. So, right now, I'm working on the Maharikra from Yosef Kara, who was similarly ways by Ezra on his uh, uh, commentary on the book of the uh, Judges. I did Joshua and I'm working on Judges? I assume that's what I'm doing. Uh, I wouldn't mind putting out the books that I put on the web, in, uh report, hard cover. But you know, there's an economic issue towards so. and anyway more people read your books on the any other way, but uh,
1: that's what I'm working on now. It sounds like a wonderful initiative. It's so necessary and makes a significant contribution to our knowledge. So I I applaud you and congratulate you on your work with the Alhatora website.
0: Thank you very much. Rabbi Hillel Levitsky, incidentally, is the one who was in charge of the editorial uh, website. He came up with the idea, and they have put out a, a lot of material. On.
1: I am signing off. I'm, I'm just going to sign off by thanking you for your time and by reminding our listeners that I'm your host on the New Books Network and the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Rabbi Dr. Chaim Norman Strickman. He is a retired professor of Judaic Studies at Touro College. We have been discussing his newly edited and translated book, Abraham Ibn Ezra's The Secret of the Torah, a translation of Ibn Ezra's Yesud Morah, published in New York by Kodesh Press 2021. Did I interject? Yes.
0: I'm also Rabbi Emeritus of the Marie Archie Santa, Brooklyn. I would hate my not battle to say I that.
1: thank you that thank you for adding that okay it's important for all of us to know thank you